When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Chickasaw native, your Chickasaw Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. And what a great treat we have today. He's the, the youngest CMLL champion of all time down in Mexico, two-time intercontinental champion, the WWE tag team champion. When you talk about the Attitude Era, this man epitomizes the Attitude Era. One of the greatest characters ever. One of the greatest people ever. We are really happy to have our friend, Mr. Val Venus, Sean Morley on the show. Val, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, brother. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, Val, man, we really appreciate your time today. We, we see you're, you're in your car in that Arizona heat. It's 188 degrees out there, but you're sacrificing your, your health, your body, your car, and everything. Just come on stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. Man, we appreciate it. We we got so much to talk about today. We're not going to keep you in that car forever, but we'll keep you in there most of the afternoon. <laughs> there we go. Hey, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jerry. Wait, wait a minute, Val. You, do you have the air conditioner on, or we're going to have to have like somebody come by and break you out like a dog or baby <laughs> in the car? And, and oh hell no! I got that AC on. Of course I got that AC on. You'd be insane not to have the AC on right now. Well, unlock your, uh, unlock your do- doors and windows so they can get in in case you pass out. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, well, that might be good rating for our show, man. So, oh, that'd be great. Hey, turn wow. your air conditioner oh, yeah. Turn your air conditioner off for about a half hour. Let's just experiment and see what we can do. You got any eggs or anything you can fry on the dashboard? What a great idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, you could you could actually you could fry some eggs on the on the hood of my car. You yeah. could actually fry eggs on it. You could fry eggs on the uh, pavement out here too. Yeah. That pavement. Let me tell you something. When that sun, that Phoenix sun beats down on this asphalt all day long, I'll tell you what. The sun goes down and it just gets hotter because yeah. you know the geothermal mass, right? It just absorbs yeah. all that radiation yeah. and then spends the rest of the night just releasing that heat back into the air. So when you think it's going to drop below 100 degrees at 2 o'clock in the morning, it's still 110 degrees. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I've been out there. we all been out there in the summertime. And, you know, we go to the pool. We wear flip-flops. On the way from the room to the pool, walking there in flip-flops, your bottom of your feet blister. It's so damn hot out yeah. there. I can't believe it. you go up and you, you, you grab the door handle and you pull your, your head back to damn door handle. So, so damn hot there. I live here in Florida. Everybody says, well, it's hot there. Uh, you got all that humidity. 
brother, you go out there, it's 115 degrees in Phoenix. It's hot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It gets hot here, man. This is hell here sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Now, I will say blow, this. If you ever blow out a flip-flop, you're just screwed. Yeah. You don't, oh, yeah. Don't move. You call 911. <laughs> you call them, blow it out flip-flop. <laughs> I've, done, I've done that before. You know, you blow out a flip-flop and you're like, oh, dude, I, I, got, I can't go anywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, I will say this. I bought myself five acres up in the White Mountains of Arizona, way out in the wilderness. It's always about 20 to 30 degrees cooler up in the mountains wow. than it is down here in the valley. So that's kind of uh, that's where I head up on the weekends is head straight up that mountain up in northern Arizona. Yeah. Much better up there. Well, let's talk about uh, some place right now that that's not not so hot. Canada, your home country up there. You know, Val. You know, you're growing up and everything, and you started this business at a fairly early age. How did you get inspired? What was what was your inspiration to to and who 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 kind of was that tipping guy that that said. Man, I want to do this. Tell us a little bit about early Val Vince. Well, you know, I wrestled all throughout high school and whatnot. And uh, the one guy that I met while I was in high school was named Jumpin' Jason Sterling. I don't know if you guys remember him or not. Uh, you know, Dewey Robertson, it was his son. No, Dewey, yeah. Yeah. And oh, so, Dewey, I yeah, met... yeah, yeah. you know, I read that. You know, the cool thing, I'm sorry to cut you off. The cool thing about doing this show is we're going to do research on people that we've known a long time. And I had no idea Missing Link was one of the ones that uh, trained you. I, I knew Link really well. Yeah. Oh, you did. I didn't know that. Right. Yeah, oh, very yeah, cool. Yeah, I was in Japan with him. Nice oh, very guy. cool. Nice yeah. guy. A little crazy. Super nice, nice guy. guy. A little, a little crazy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. He was, uh, you know, when I met his son, they, they told me that they opened up a school at uh, Dewey's house. And so I started going down there on the weekends uh, my last year of high school, and I uh, was just being trained by his son and Dewey himself. And I uh, trained down there on the weekends for about a year and then started doing a couple of house shows in Canada. Just well, going what, to work what, what brought shows. that training on? Was you just, you, you watched it on TV and you said, I want to do it or what? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was something I, they, they said, Hey, you want to learn how to do this professionally? And I was like, man, I've always loved it. I'd love yeah. to learn how to do professionally. Yeah. Never really expected to make a career out of it. At that particular point in time in my life, I was gearing up to move towards aeronautical science. I wanted to eventually fly air ambulance helicopters. And uh, once they told me, hey, you want to learn how to do this professionally? And I was, you know, I said, yeah, I'd love to learn how to do it. So I just started training on the weekends, just thinking I would do it for fun. And then I got my first full-time wrestling job over in England the day after I graduated high school. And uh, so I'll go over for the summer and wrestle for the summer. I've never been to England before. And as soon as I landed in England and started wrestling full-time, it was like this, the, the switch flipped and I just fell in love with the business. And uh, yeah, I didn't stop. I didn't spend just the summer there. I spent the whole year over there and I just kept working after that. And, uh, you know, went to uh, Arkansas after uh, England for a year. I uh, went to Ar Arkansas. Arkansas. For Arkansas. What the hell is in Arkansas? You remember uh, Bert Prentice? Remember Bert that Prentice. guy? Uh, yeah, Bert Prentice. <laughs> Bert Prentice was running shows down there for, uh, I think it was called Ozark Mountain Wrestling. And so I uh, went and worked down there, starved my ass off for eight months. And then uh, 
my tag partner and I at the time. Off, you know, there were, there were notorious uh, bad pay guys and there were notorious no pay guys. Bert was one <laughs> yes. of the notorious no, no pay guys. Pay. <laughs> they were, yes, yes. Still owes me money to this day. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, after spending eight months in Arkansas, we went down to Puerto Rico. We got real lucky in Puerto Rico. Uh, we had just, Shane and I had just called down to uh, Puerto Rico. We didn't have any tapes sent down there or anything. I was actually calling to get the address in order to send some of our video uh, tapes down to. And when I called, Carlos picked up the phone and we, you know, I was saying, hey, we're the Canadian Glamour Boys from Toronto, Canada. Um, we'd like to get an address to send down our, our work to you. We've been working for a couple of years at that point. And it just so happened that a half hour before I called down there, the tag team that Carlos had booked, Carlos Angevica had booked uh, for that upcoming weekend, canceled on them. And so they were looking for a replacement tag team. So they, they said, hey, listen, we don't have any video of you guys or anything like that. As it stands right now, here's what happened. We need a replacement. We'll make you a deal. You guys fly your asses down here. And we'll give you one shot on a Saturday night. If you don't like you, you fly your asses back off the island. If we like you, we'll work out a deal. So Shane and I, not having a whole lot of money at the time, uh -huh. we said, do we take a chance on this or what? It's, you know, at the time, we were still, Puerto Rico was still going five nights a week, which was unbelievable. What year was and, this? And uh, this is going back 95, 96. Wow. Yeah. 90, 95, I think it was. And, uh, so we, uh, we flew down and we flew down there Friday and uh, we did the match Saturday and we wrestled Shane and I against uh, Hurricane Castillo and Alan Vader. And right after we were done that match, as soon as we walked past back the curtain or past the curtain there, uh, Victor Javica and Carlos were there and they said, we want to work out a deal with you guys. And that began a six year tour down there, basically. Wow. And uh, yeah, six years in PR. Who did you, who did you work for in England? How'd you get a job right out of high school to go to England? So my tag partner, Shane Sewell up in Toronto, he was, you know, still relatively new as well, but he had gotten to go over to England a few months prior to us going over there as a tag team. And they seemed to like him over there. It was Brian Dixon. I don't know if you remember Brian yeah. Dixon or not. He just yeah. recently passed away, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, when it was Sue Shane that I got the, uh, you know, he basically called Brian and said, hey, we got a tag team here in Canada called the Canadian Glamour Boys. You want to bring us over as a tag? And sure enough, he said, yeah, come on over. So I went over there and I, that's, you know, your first full-time wrestling job. That first year, I just learned an incredible amount from people like, um, you know, uh, uh, it was Dave Taylor, Doc Dean, Robbie Brookside. Um, a lot of those guys were over there. Tony Sinclair was over there. Learned a lot from a lot of real, real solid talent over there, you know, yeah. real fast too. Yeah. So it was how a long, good experience. How, how long, how long had you been training before you made, I got this call to, to go to uh, London or England? Uh, about a year and a half. At that about point. a year and a half. Wow. About a year and a half. Yeah. 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 Had yeah. you had you had any independent matches there in, in, in uh, Canada or just. Yeah. Yeah. I had a few. Uh, one of my first uh, matches was on Ricky Johnson's show. That was uh, the rock's uncle. Right. Yeah. He had, he put on a show in, uh, in Toronto in Regent park, which is a real, you know, sketchy area of Toronto, but it was in a, it was in a high school gym and, uh, edge was there. Christian was there. 
and that's where I first met Edge. So they and, were just um, they were just breaking in, or had, had, did they start about the same time that you guys started? They started right around the same time, but that was the first time I met Edge. He had, uh, I guess, he was training with, uh, I guess, at Sweet Daddy Seeky School, right, mm-hmm. with Hutchinson uh, out there in yeah. Toronto, right? Yeah, so yeah, that was the first match that uh, that I met Edge at the time. I think so they were called you guys him. Working in England, were you guys working a lot of campground uh, shows or arenas? What were you working? Yeah, so in the summer times, well, in the spring and in, in the summer, we were doing Butlins camps for the top for the uh, afternoon shows, and then sometimes we would do the town shows at night. So we'd do double duty quite a bit too. And uh, but yeah, it was mostly in the in the spring and in the summer. It was all Butlins camps in the afternoon. Yeah. Did you ever do any of those Butlins camps? No, I did some camps, but in Europe, not in England. I never worked in England. Oh, in Europe. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah you worked in Germany, didn't you? Yeah, I worked in Germany and yeah, in Austria for two years for for Otto and Peter. For Otto and Peter, you know, Otto, Otto yeah. ran uh, uh, Graz in Vienna, and then they split. I think uh, Hanover, maybe I think it was, and then Bremen was, I think, all Otto. Yeah, so and then Peter, there was Peter the, came there... in. Peter came in and replaced. Uh, that's when Saint Clair went to. Uh, Europe was because Peter came in and replaced the promoter. Right. And then there was, it was Hamburg. There was a, a one up in Hamburg up there. That's too. right. Yeah. 10 shows. Yeah. That's did you, right. did yeah. you ever get over work with auto group or any of those groups over in Germany? No, I did a shot over in, uh, over in Germany one time while I was working in England, but it was just Brian Dixon basically selling me off for a, for a one shot deal basically. Yeah. So, so so when I, you were there, like like you said, you had St. Clair, Brookside, and all those other Dave Taylor. Man, well, what 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 a group to learn from! And all those guys are teachers, not only uh, performers, but but they're teachers in the ring and out of the ring. That that had to be a great learning experience while you were there. Oh, it was incredible! Another guy over there uh, was named Danny Collins. I don't know if you guys oh, remember Danny him Boy. Not. Yeah, what a great talent that guy was! What a Man. stiff bastard. <laughs> that's funny you know you're, you're uh, going to call somebody a Jeff Bassett, <laughs> you know it, it's kind of funny because the very first time i had to wrestle him he came back into the locker room and he's sitting across from me and he's undoing his boots and he wasn't saying anything and as i'm undoing mine i look up and he stares right at me and he goes you know mike you don't really have to hit me for me to sell it <laughs> Danny was like, Danny was a great worker. I mean, I, I love. Yeah, Danny. he was. I, yeah, he could be snug, but what? what a, yes, what he a, could. What a great worker! I mean, he got yeah. heat like a. It was unreal. How oh yeah. Heat. Oh yeah, he was. He was fantastic. You know, there was a time we were doing a tag match, and I had never once gone over backwards over the top rope, and. uh so Dave Taylor, who was tagging with Danny Collins at the time, he was telling me about this little spot we we're going to do. He goes, when you feed up, feed up to the ropes, I'm going to press my partner over my head and toss him onto you. You catch him like a cross body and go backward over the ropes. And I'm shaking my head. I'm going, whoa, whoa, wait, you want me to do what? And he goes, and Danny looks right at me. He goes, don't worry, man, I'll take care of you. I'm just like. Okay, so I just put all my trust into him because I had no idea what I was doing. I fed up onto those ropes, my back on the ropes, and sure enough, here comes Danny Collins. I didn't have my hands on the ropes or nothing. I just caught him like a crossbody, and sure enough, he took 100% care of me, man. We went flipping right over, and it was a piece of cake, and it was because of that one time that Danny Collins 
took me over that top rope with him. It was a piece of cake for me to go over that top rope without any issues that, from that point forward. So, so that's a huge <laughs> spot over in uh, Europe. Finley called that one time on the fly with me in Vienna, and he's going to hit me, and I had no idea what he's talking about. Same thing. And he hits me, but I don't catch him. I have no idea what's going on. All of a sudden, this big man's flying at me. I'm going back over the rope. I'm trying to grab him. He's falling off somewhere else. We almost killed each other. (laughs) (laughs) He goes, goes, what happened? You didn't catch me. I go, damn near died. I don't don't know what happened. What was Finley over there? Was Finley over there when you were there, Val, or was he had he left? Uh, he had come in and out, but he didn't wrestle while I was there. I think he was over in Germany pretty much full time at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I remember correctly, with, uh, he tagged with Danny Boy Collins uh, in in Germany a lot. They yeah, were, yeah, I remember. Were, I remember Danny saying he was going over there to tag with him quite a they bit. They were a great tag team. I mean, those guys got oh, yeah. so much heat. They had just great match after great match. Those guys could work. Oh, yes, they could. Yes, they could. I learned it was it was an amazing experience having my first full time pro wrestling job over in England with those guys. Is I mean, every day you just learn more and more and more and you learn it fast. You know, you learn things really fast working with those guys. And and you learn such a great style, too, of, of working. It's totally different and probably what you were learning in Canada and then seeing in the U.S. You just told it's totally different style over there. But it's it's, it's, it's a good, solid work. That, that, had, that, that had to help your career advance a lot, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, it did. I, you know, I, I picked up different styles everywhere I went. I would really say the place where I really kind of stayed away from learning the style. I mean, I was still acquiring the knowledge from them and doing some things in this case that were uh, considered a different style, but it was Mexico. Uh, you know, in Mexico to me, it was, I got down there and it was like more like a gymnastic show than a wrestling match. Yeah. And uh, you know, selling was very few and far between with selling in Mexico. And, and so it was, I had to bring a style down there. I took everything else I learned from England, from Puerto Rico, just from working around other territories. I took that to Mexico and I stayed with the styles that I learned prior to going to Mexico in Mexico. I was getting pushed to be, you know, Hey, take this power bomb. And then 10 seconds later, you're up running the ropes again. And I was like, I ain't doing that. But in Mexico, that's normal for them. Yeah. You know, it's something that I just kind of refuse yeah. to uh, play along with uh, yeah. down in Mexico. Wait, know, one of the things, and you know, they always called the Americans the gringos. There was always a, a, the token gringo or two on the roster. One of the reasons the, the gringos that ended up getting over work differently, you know, and which is, you know, you try to explain to everybody nowadays, you know, you, if you're working like everybody else, you're just like everybody else. But like you're saying, you worked differently. You know, not only do yeah. you look different, but if you work differently, it tends to get over. If it has the chance to get over, it will get over better than everybody else because it's so different. Right. No, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I see, you know, when you watch Mexican wrestling, you get a lot of the ooh, ah, and the pops from great looking moves, but there's no emotional connection from the fans to the talent. I mean, you get a guy at the water cooler the next day and they're talking about the match they saw the night before. Oh, did you see this match? It was incredible. Double moonsault with three half twists and he landed on the guy. It was great. Oh, what was the guy's name? Oh, I don't know, but it was a great looking move. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's no emotional attachment where they don't, they don't care about yeah. the wrestler's name. They don't care about the wrestler's character. All they remembered is the move. 
but because there's no selling behind it, there's no emotional connection. Uh, they just, it's, it's when you get somebody that goes down there and begins to sell and starts to develop an emotional connection with the fans, you can make big money down there doing that. Cause not a lot of the Mexican wrestlers do that. Now, now what for in Mexico? For CMLL, for Paco Alonso. Paco Alonso down in Mexico city. Yeah. He, uh, arena Mexico. He owned arena Mexico down there. I remember him specifically telling me, and this is back when, you know, MMA was just kind of starting out. Like it was still kind of a, a new kind of thing just being built out. And I remember that Paco Alonso, we went out for dinner one night and he says, the only thing he does is boxing and wrestling right inside his arena, arena, Mexico. And I said, maybe one day you'll bring MMA in there. And he was flat out telling me, no, no, we're, we do we do boxing and wrestling only. Now there's MMA down there too now. So, yeah, it's pretty wild to see how uh, the culture changes enough where the boss will be like, eh, there's money there. Let's put it in here, you know. When when you were in England, what uh, uh, what what made you lay, uh, leave there? What what was your payoff? Were you making a, a decent living for for a new guy in the business? Were you happy with the money, or or did how, you how, just how, go how? want to work for Burt Prentice? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no, no pay Bert. <laughs> no, you know, I stayed there over. I stayed over there for a whole year, and uh, my partner had left probably about three or four months before I did. Uh, he had some issues to take care of in Canada, so I stayed on as a singles talent. And then my partner called. And he says, "Hey, you want to come back here and go work for Bert Prentice? I guess he had set <laughs> oh, up yeah. the deal down at Bert." And I didn't even know who Bert was at the time. And uh, sure enough, I just said, hey, let's do it. Now, I've been over here for a whole year at this point. So I handed in my two weeks notice and then, unfortunately, flew back to Canada and drove down to Arkansas and uh, starved for about eight months down there. Wow. Yeah. Where were you running Within, in Arkansas? Uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas was the main, the main town they were in, but they were running – you know, within a two hour radius of there on a regular basis. You know, when I say regular, I'm talking three or four nights a week, yeah. you know, so it wasn't too, too bad, but it wasn't like Puerto Rico where you're doing five nights a week, every single week, all year long. You know what I mean? So you got over to Puerto Rico from, from Bert and, and Carlos, Carlos were pretty well taking care of you guys down there, both financially and, and booking you pretty steady. You you you're probably catching caught on, uh, uh, you know, with the business and how to how to perform in the ring at that time. Who who were some of your opponents that you guys were working with down there? Well, we did a lot with Hurricane Castile and Ellen Vader. We did a lot with them. Uh, we did some stuff with Cheeky Star down there. Um, there were a bunch of guys that came in and out of there, and some uh, the what do you call them? Um, the Farmer Boys down there. They were. Uh, Oh, the Pogarcitos. We, we did real long angles with them. Like, I mean, angles that went on for like six, seven months yeah. with the Pogarcitos sometimes. So, was, was this post uh, uh, Brody's uh, killing down there or what? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, this is long after that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know at the time, at the time that the very first Saturday night that we were there, we were wrestling Hurricane Castile and Ellen Vader. I didn't know it was Ellen Vader that had stabbed Brody. I had no idea until after the match. And uh, that was a little bit shocking because, you know, you hear the stories about it, but I never really put two and two together because it wasn't something I was thinking about until after right. the match. And uh, we left the arena and we went to a bar and we're all just sitting around and a couple of the other American guys, you know, they said, Hey, you know that, you know, that cat that you were working in the ring there with tonight. 
And I was like, which one? They said, Ellen Vader. That's the guy that did Brody in. And yeah, that was a little shocking. That was a little shocking. Yeah. You know, they did that uh, pay-per-view live event, they call them now, uh, down in uh, Puerto Rico for WWE recently. And everybody talking about how great the crowd was. That's just a Puerto Rican crowd. Yeah. I mean, yeah. those, crowd, those crowds were like that. I mean, they, they are just as passionate as any group of people I've, I've ever seen. Oh, yeah, the Puerto Rican crowd was phenomenal. And, you know, I will say this. Back at that point in time, the first couple of years I was in Puerto Rico, you know, you're a young guy, you want to do all this high spots, flippity, floppity stuff everywhere, you know what I mean? I was still kind of in that mentality. And Shane and I, after, I think it was our second year there, I guess, we were looking out the curtain or watching Carlos work. Now, Carlos barely does anything in the ring punches, kicks, jumps up and touches his toes. Um, but he had an emotional connection with the Puerto Rican fans down there that blew our connection with the fans out of the water. And Shane and I were talking and we're going, he does nothing in the ring. Granted, he's been there a long time. He's obviously uh, a staple in, in Puerto Rican wrestling. And uh, so, you know, he's had a lot, a lot of time to build a relationship with the fans at that point. But there was still something about his matches that was different than what we were doing. And when we started to analyze our matches that we were doing in Puerto Rico that second year, and we're watching like Cheeky Stars matches, Carlos Colon's matches. We started to notice that they spent a lot more time building that emotional connection with the fans rather than doing big, huge moves that get the pop and get the ooh, ah. And so when Shane and I started to slow down our work in the ring and start really telling more of a story in ring, we started to notice that the fans were becoming more emotionally attached to what we were doing in the ring. And so that's, you know, that's one of the big things that I got out of Puerto Rico was really slowing down, take your time, really start telling the story of what you're doing in that ring and make the fans believe what's happening in that ring is real or at least get them to question, is that real or is it not? You know what I mean? What, what, and, uh, what a, was, go ahead. I'm sorry. It was, it was at that point in time in Puerto Rico where Shane and I really started to slow down what we were doing in the ring and try to work on making, creating that emotional connection with the yeah. fans. Well, what, what a great point you're bringing up there. Which, which, a lot of the younger guys don't really realize. They hear the term slow down. They don't, they don't really understand what we mean. And they, 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 we don't mean come to a stop. We just mean slow down your work a little bit, slow down your moves a little bit, give, give the people a chance to digest. And you're learning that at a still early age in the business there. That, that's so important. And that's how you, exactly what you said. That's how you build that emotional, emotional attachment with the fans there. They, they have time to appreciate and take in what you're doing. And if you're selling, they have time to, to, to realize why you're selling something too. But that at the term, you know, all of us old timers throw around all the time, slow down, slow the hell down. A lot of people just don't understand what we mean, but you described it pretty damn good there. Yeah, it's uh, but it, it took a few years for that to, cause your adrenaline gets going in the ring. Yeah. You're, young, you're a young you're, guy. You're young and you got all that damn energy, man. And, and, and you don't believe yeah. the old guys. I mean, you yeah, don't. No, I mean, you don't. Every no, you generation's don't. the same. You know, you, the, the, this yep. generation today is not even much different from my generation, yeah, older yeah, generation. Yeah. You know, the old guys will say, you got to slow down. You got to learn how to work. And, and you're just sitting there going, 
you're just lazy. That's all it is. Yeah. I, I work hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the mentality that, yeah. that we have when we're younger. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I'll give you a prime example. Um, Brock Lesnar. I see Brock Lesnar has did this a few times where get a guy in a corner, you put his hands on that middle rope and drive his shoulder into your gut. Now, you only got to do that one time to me and I'll push you away and sell my gut all the way to the next corner. Yeah. Right. Right. And then I watch Brock, who's a monster of a man, take a guy in a corner and then put his hands in that middle rope and rapid fire with his shoulder, driving it into the guy's gut. And the guy's just like a rubber dog on boom, boom, boom. And I'm like, just give that to me one time. But when I was younger, I would probably want the, the rapid fire shoulders, not really cluing in that this is a monster. He only He's only got to give me one good shoulder for me to sell the hell out of it and really make the fans believe it. But I see, you know, I saw Brock do that a few times where he would just big, huge, strong guy. And he's given like, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten shoulders to the gut all in a row. And then the guy sells the 10th one. You know what I mean? That just made Do no sense. Do you want to be to the producer to tell him that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I always wondered what happens to producers that tell, you know, people like Brock Lesnar, Hey, just give him one and tell him to sell the hell out of it. You know yeah, what I mean? The thing is Brock. I mean, I, I'm amazed at Brock because the guy wrestles five, six times a year. And he just has incredible matches. I mean, that's almost impossible. I don't think yeah. I could have wrestled, you know, at the end of my career, just five, six times a year and constantly have the type of quality matches that Brock has. I just think Brock's obviously one of the toughest guys of all time. You know, his, his record is insane as far as NCAA champion, UFC champion, all that stuff that he did. But I think he's one of the greatest workers of all time. You know, a guy who really oh, yeah. understands the business. It's just amazing to me that he's he's not really part-time because he's an attraction, you know, kind of like Andre was, you know, but it's right the, the spot that he's in to be able to be continually successful with so many different people and so many different sizes and characters. It's quite amazing what he's done. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't get to watch the product all that much because I'm so damn busy these days. But uh, there were a couple of times where I watched Brock. They were doing that whole character where he came back and he was wearing the cowboy hat. He was doing some real funny stuff. To me, that looked like Brock having fun. Yeah. And it made me want to watch it more, even though time was limited. But it made me want to watch it more. If it's making me want to watch it, it's definitely making the hardcore fans want to watch it more. I, I really like that era of Brock Lesnar. I think that was what, probably one of my favorite eras of Brock Lesnar when he was just out there, just having, having fun. fun, making and jokes. It, yeah. And, and it came across, and like you say, as real, uh, this guy's really, really having fun now, as opposed to that serious Brock that was a monster killer and all that stuff. Now we're getting to see that different side of Brock, that personality that, that actually I saw when he was in college. You know, Brock was a fun loving college kid when I first met him at the University of Minnesota. And that character started coming out because I always, always question, why are we making this guy so serious? Well, he was an animal. That's why he was a killer, you know. But but then we let him go, and, and man, what a personality. But back to you, man. Uh, you're in Puerto Rico. Your next stop is, what, Mexico after that? And how, how did you get in Mexico? Was it through somebody that you, uh, you, you, you tied up with in Puerto Rico? 
Yeah, so there was a, a promoter down in Puerto Rico. I'm sure you guys remember him, Victor Quinones. Oh, yeah, Victor. Right and uh, yeah, so I met Victor down there. And uh, he was, at first, they wanted Shane and I to go over to Mexico as a tag team. But Shane and I had been in Puerto Rico for a lot of years at that point. And Shane fell in love with Puerto Rico. He didn't want to leave. That was, you know, he that was his island. He didn't want to leave. He got married down there. And uh, so... Victor came to me and he said, hey, Paco Alonso has a mask and it looks like steel, looks like there's metal. It's made from metal. And uh, you want somebody to wear it. Would you want to go over there as a singles? And so uh, I took a look at the offer and I said, yeah, let's, I'd love to do that. So we did a six week notice in Puerto Rico because Shane and I were still, we were the tag team champs at the time. So we did a whole storyline where we lost the titles because of, you know, miscommunication. I caused, caused us to lose the, the title match. Shane turns on me and we do a big blow off match to where a loser leaves town. Right. Six weeks later, I eventually lose the match and I leave town and head off to Mexico and put on the steel mask. Uh, but the, the one good thing about that was Paco was good waiting six weeks. And Carlos was cool with uh, writing me off TV there, for, you know, over a six week period. And so it worked out really well, but it was through Victor Quinones uh, and that was, I guess, really good friends with Paco Alonso at the time. And he's the one that kind of introduced me to uh, Paco and put the steel mask on me. And how long, how long were you down in Mexico during that time? Man, I was, well, in and out of there for two years, but one year completely solid because I was going back and forth to Japan too in the second year. So kind of bouncing back and forth between japan and mexico at the time but the first year i was there full-time who were you working for in japan uh for all japan pro wrestling at the time for uh johnny ace (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you're over there with doc and albright and those guys stan yep yep stan uh albright was there that guy was a beast holy cow we we just met, we just met his family up in Iowa this past weekend. What a beautiful family he 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 had, man. I mean, yeah, he was he, he was a good dude. I, I liked Albright, man. He was good. You know, I watched him want to literally bury another guy named Rex King six feet under one night. He just wanted. I mean, it was unbelievable. I I never saw Albright so mad before. <laughs> And it was, uh, I'm not going to lie, it was a little scary. We're all sitting there looking at each other like, do we stop him or what's going on here? That, that's what I was thinking, man. What What do you do with a, a beast like yeah. that? That's really angry. Let him go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, I will say this. The very first time I went to, I went to all Japan, I flew in there, you know, never been to Japan before. It was always a goal of mine at that point. And I was super excited to be there. And I... Uh, I got onto the bus and they're still waiting for other talent to show up. And I know Stan Hansen was on that tour. And I'm like, man, I'm finally going to get to meet Stan Hansen. Finally, it's about time all these years. And so uh, I'm waiting for Stan to walk out of the airport. Now, Rex King, they, they, Johnny Ace was my first trip over there. He had Rex King and I as a tag team over there. I had no idea that Rex had heat with Stan or anyone else over there. I had no clue. I, I was completely oblivious to this. Now, when we got on the bus, Rex went near to the back of the bus. I kind of sat up near the front and I'm waiting for Stan Hansen to come walking out. And I finally see him come walking out and I'm like, yes, I'm finally going to get to meet Stan Hansen. 
And he gets up onto the stairs of the bus and he turns and he looks straight down the aisle right at the very back of the bus. And he sees Rex back there and he stops. And he goes, God damn it. He goes, Rex. And he points right down at Rex. He goes, if you open your mouth one time in the first two weeks of this tour, and I'm just sinking down in my chair like, oh, I got instant heat by association. And so uh, I have no idea what the heat is between Stan and Rex. All I know is, in my mind, I'm screwed. Yeah. So he tells Rex off, and then he comes and he sits right across from me, right? And he goes, uh, how you doing, kid? Stan. And I shake his hand. And I go, Sean Morley, pleasure to meet you. And we we had a real good conversation. It was about an hour to the hotel. We had a really good conversation and a uh, really cool guy. And then when we got off the bus, we had that night off, right? And I'm reaching under the bus to grab my bag to pull it out. And Rex is standing right behind me. Huh. And I'm pulling my bag out. And Stan comes up behind me and he goes, kid, throw your bag in your room. Meet me down in the lobby in 10 minutes. I'll take you to dinner. And Rex goes, oh, did you see it be down here in 10 minutes? And Stan looks right at him without any flicks. He goes, knock you, Rex. And I'm just like, oh, oh what are we doing here? Get away I'm, in real, yeah. I'm in a real bad position now. Yeah. I just didn't say anything at that point. I did what I was told. I went through my bag up there and met him down there in 10 minutes. And we went out for dinner. But, yeah, I know. I, I like Stan. He was a good dude, man. Really, really good dude. I guess he's living out in Colorado up in the mountains now. Exactly. We hey, just a little side story. We we uh, we had uh, Stan on our on our podcast, and uh, and this is one of my favorite episodes. Uh, I watched it JBL because JBL is such a big Stan Hansen fan. There, Stan was having trouble getting on the internet. Well, usually John just lets the guy work through it himself, but man, John became a coach, a teacher, and uh, everything else. Was Stan. <laughs> and and man, everything everything we tried didn't work, and finally said, "I right, screw." It. We thought we were going to lose Sam for the interview that day. So his granddaughter comes in and goes over the computer, does a couple of things, and boom, he's on. So I see that smile come across Layfield's face. So <laughs> we all we all have our heroes in the business, and I got to witness JBL uh, market out over his hero. Man, that was such a great deal. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I love Stan. I, I just everything about him. Uh, he's just he's just the nicest man for one. But his style in the is. ring was there was nobody ever likes ever likes maybe Brody uh, ever likes yeah. Stan. Yeah, yeah. You know he yeah, was, tell he, you, he was uh, in constant motion from the time he walked out of the crowd. And if you've ever been out there in the ring, like I'm sure you have, when Stan comes out with that cowbell yeah. flying <laughs> everywhere, oh, just swinging that sucker like, around. Oh. It's one of the oh, great, yeah. it's one of the greatest entrances ever. Except that, that you're in the ring waiting on him because yeah. you're like, oh my god, <laughs> yeah. this whirlwind is coming toward me. And then one of the it's most terrifying, one of the most terrifying sights in the business, and when you see him coming off that rope with that arm out, man, and right. you, oh, yeah. you're seeing those oh, yeah. eyes, you're seeing those eyes, you know, kind of focus in on where where they hit. You know, we we caught him that the other day in St. Louis. You know, he we dropped something on the floor, and I think it was a dime or a nickel. Anyway, he reaches out and picks it. I said, Stan, you you just you just dispelled all those rumors in the past that you were blind. You can see that sitting on the floor there. You picked it right up. I said, so all that was a work. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. You know, I'll tell you a story about Stan. So that very first tour, I was over in all Japan. I guess it was about two weeks into the tour. 
And I get to the arena and I see I'm in a match where it's three on three. And so there was, uh, it was me, Rex King and Johnny Ace. And we were going against, I believe it was Stan. I can't remember who else was in there. I just remember Stan being in there. There was two, two other guys in there, two Japanese guys. I can't remember who they were, but, uh, Johnny was in there with Stan at one point and I hadn't gotten in the ring with Stan. This is going to be my very first time ever getting in the ring with Stan. And uh, so Johnny's in there and he's working Stan's arm and he comes over and tags me in. And uh, so Stan, when I take his arm and twist it up, he goes, arm drag me, kid. So I arm drag him and I hook his arm and I put my knee on the side of his face and I can see all the Japanese cameras in front of me. And I go, oh, I'm not wasting this moment. So I went, franked up on that arm. And I'm like posing for the cameras, right? I see the flashes going off. I'm like, oh, this is such a badass photo. I got Stan Hansen locked up here. And all these flashes are going off. I'm like, Rah! two weeks later, we're on the bus. And Stan goes, hey, Sean, come here. So I get up from my seat and I walk over to where he's at and he opens up the wrestling magazine and it's in the middle of the magazine. It's got the centerfold and Stan laying there with me in an arm bar with him and, it, and my knee on his head and he's sitting there selling his arm doing this. <laughs> I'm looking at the picture going, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, no, unbelievable. Like he's smoking a cigarette. Yeah, unbelievable. And they awesome. put that in the magazine. You know, Stan, what people don't realize is is how much the magazines got people over in Japan. And whenever you had, oh, yeah. steel, whenever you had a still picture of Stan, it was always in character. You know, Stan would have you know, oh, yeah. working move on, but he's got that. Wait a minute, Stan Hansen did smoke cigarettes, John. So you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah <I> <laughs> He's laying there enjoying it. Oh, tell, tell, tell us this. With Rex and Stan, how did they work? I mean, with their, with their heat and the ring, or was, was Stan a professional and worked his way through that in the ring? And your no, Stan, Stan was very professional, but uh, Rex didn't. Uh, I'll tell you, Rex was feared for his life every time he got in the ring. I don't blame him. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he goes, he goes, hey, that three, that six man that we did three on three, I remember specifically being in the locker room and Rex coming up to me and grabbing me he goes hey just uh just make sure stan doesn't hurt me out there i'm like <laughs> yeah what do you want me to do i'm gonna be standing on the ring apron when you're in yeah. there with him yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean like he he did rex rex always feared getting in the ring with uh with stan that's yeah. for sure but stan was always professional yeah yeah you know how many tours were you doing in, in japan a year at the time well at that time i'd only done two that year and uh so i did two that year uh, flying back and forth to Mexico. And then, uh, of course, after WWE, I went and uh, worked with New Japan for a little bit. Yeah. When, 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 when they're doing the research, I said, when you, when you went back to Japan, uh, that's when you first met uh, Bruce Prichard. Is that your first contact with WWE or was you made contact before? Or how did that, how did that contact happen? No, we made contact in Mexico first. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I guess Victor Quinones and Bruce Pritchard were, uh, you know, kind of traveling to Puerto Rico, Mexico, and Japan together at the time. And uh, so I met him first when I was in Mexico City. And uh, it was Paco Alonso and Victor Quinones took everybody out along with Bruce Pritchard to some, 
I guess, real famous restaurant in Mexico City that served like lion meat and uh, fried worms and crunchy <laughs> animals animals at the zoo. I don't know what the hell they were doing. I just they remember they brought all this weird there. stuff. <laughs> you were right. Maybe missing a few animals. But, um, I, you know, the, the Bruce, he, he tried a little bit of everything. He tried the crunchy old fried worms. He tried the little ants. He tried, I think it was lion meat that he that he wanted me to try. And I was like taking a little bite of it. And it just tasted like game. So you're saying Bruce eats a lot. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! No, I think he'll try pretty much anything. <laughs> and was that, Big was Bruce. that how you end up going? Uh, end up getting the intro to WWE? Yes. Uh, once I got introduced to Bruce Pritchard, it kind of took off from there. Um, they talked about it a few times uh, about me coming up to a camp that they wanted to hold up in New York, and uh, at this television studio. And so when they finally solidified that, yeah, they're going to have this camp, that's when they called me up and said, hey, you want to come on up here? And I guess it was a two-week camp, I think it was. And uh, Edge was on that one. And uh, uh, what was it? Ahmed Johnson. That guy was on it. <laughs> so, so get this one. We're at, the, uh, we're at the television studio. It's just a camp. We're just practicing, wrestling, you know, just kind of performing just for each other, right? And uh, so... It was Dory Funk that said, okay, Ahmed Johnson, Sean Morley, get on in there. Uh, give me whatever, six, seven minutes. And uh, Sean, you're over. And Ahmed, you're down. Now, this is where I kind of like, this is the first time this has ever happened to me. I didn't find out until a little while after. Ahmed pulled Dory Funk aside and was saying, you really think I should lose to this cat? <laughs> And it's a workout. It, and it's a workout. <laughs> I was shaking my head just going, this can't be real. Am I like in the twilight zone right now? <laughs> How'd the match go? <laughs> um, it, it was a pretty easy match. He, from what I can remember, he had a little bit of a two left feet problem. He threw me into the ropes one time for a shoot. And um, it was like my feet had to try and catch up with my body. It was kind of awkward. You know what I mean? I was like, dude, you don't got to really whip me, man. I mean, I'll run. You just, yeah. it was, uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't, my personal opinion on Ahmed is he wasn't that great of a worker at all. And I think that's being nice. Well, his coordination, like you say, I think that was <laughs> one of his biggest problems. The guy had two left feet. Uh, he just couldn't. Put one in one front of the other, but man, what a look the guy had! Oh, oh wow, oh, it was incredible! Yeah, incredible! Yeah, you know, if he had a, if he had to put more time into learning the psychology behind it, learning you know proper execution, that guy could have been a beast. But then, of course, I don't know what you do about him talking. I yeah. mean, you give him Paul Heyman. You give him Paul Heyman. Yeah, there you go. Give him Paul Heyman. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's one thing with Brock as well. I mean, Brock, he, he used Paul Heyman to his advantage, but when you saw Brock come out with that, you know, cowboy carefree character, it was like, wait a minute, Brock didn't need somebody to talk for him. He just had to be himself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, that was a different phase too. In the beginning, I, th I think he did need Paul for that heel side of him because 
Brock, Brock, that good old, good old cowboy, good old country boy guy. That that that's what would have come out of that mouth in the beginning, I think, when they were trying to make it a monster hill. So the yeah. having Heyman with him gave him that thing. And and as Heyman was speaking for it, I think Brock was bright enough to pick up, you know, aspects of proboism or whatever you want to say, and and then take it when he had that chance under under his 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 own personality at that time. Excellent point. Excellent point. You know, especially when you're right next to the guy that's doing the verbiage for you, you can't help but learn. Right. It's just because you, you, you can analyze how the fans are reacting to what he's saying, how he's saying it, what the his timing. delivery features are, the timing, everything. Yeah. 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 That's a great way to learn. That's for yeah. sure. So at what they point during this camp did they tell you that you're going to be a porn star? <laughs> you know, it, it actually wasn't during the camp. Um, what happened was we did the two-week camp, and I'd only taken two weeks off from Mexico at the point. I, I asked for two weeks off to go do the camp, and so right after the camp, I flew back to Mexico, and they told me they'd call me, and I guess I was back in Mexico about maybe a week or two later, I guess it was. It was 7 a.m. in the morning in Mexico City. My phone rings, and uh, it was Vince McMahon, and he said, hey, I got Vince Russo in here on the speakerphone with me. We have this character for you and we want to run it by you. See what you think. See if you're comfortable with it. And so Vince says to me, Vince McMahon says to me, he goes, this character, his name is Val Venus. Last name spelled V-E-N-I-S. Now, when he spelled the last name, I was kind of like, mm, that's kind of odd, but all right, whatever. He says, now Val Venus was a former film star turned pro wrestler. Now in my head, I'm thinking, Paul Kogan, Jesse Ventura, this thing's already been done. You know, it's been beat to death. I mean, how am I going to be able to do a Hollywood character better than those guys and make it different? So in my head, I'm kind of like, eh. And then Vince says, actually, Val Venus was a former adult film star turned pro wrestler. <laughs> now he's got my attention. Now I'm like, oh, now this shit ain't ever been done before. Yeah. And uh, he basically laid out just the very basics of the character. And he didn't have to twist my arm much after that. <laughs> Working with hot chicks on a huge, massive WWE stage. Are you kidding me? Okay. <laughs> twist my arm a little harder. <laughs> but Vince, being the businessman that he is, and, you know, obviously being cautious about the investment he wants to make, he says, now hold on here. Because I told him, you know, you don't have to twist my arm anymore. Enough said. He goes, hold on here. Take at least 24 hours and really contemplate this character. I need you to feel comfortable with it. Because if you don't feel comfortable with it on any level, it's not going to work. So it took exactly 24 hours, called him right back and said, I'm in. <laughs> so that you're watching that clock tick down 24 hours. You're hitting yep. that up yeah. down over. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm I already in, had I'm my in. answer. I'm in, I'm in. Yeah, yeah. Now, the one thing, you know, in, going back in – in retrospect, I look back at the character now and I, I look back at it and I wonder, did it really have any kind of longevity to it that was possible? And when you really start to think about the character itself, eh, maybe not the best idea because longevity wasn't there. It's, it's one of those characters that I think you can get a few good years out of it. 
just you know, just that gatekeeper guy after that. You know, but but I mean? the but the timing, the timing that 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 character come along and and the 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 era that we're in, you know, I mean, it just fit. And as long as that oh yeah, that, that, that time frame was was working out there, that 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 had been a timeless type type uh, gimmick for you. Oh, absolutely. It was it was definitely great timing in terms of the Attitude Era just popping off at the time. Uh, they were pushing the envelope on different cultural things that I don't think were really being pushed in any TV yeah. at that point. When any I like up show. in catering and saw John Wayne Bobbitt. Yeah. Like, oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I looked up and I, I thought, I know that guy from somewhere. And then they said, that's John Wayne Bobbitt. I go, oh, my God. That's the guy who had the... Oh my God! Yeah, didn't did we even bring the wife in too? I, you know what? I think it? he did. He had people. He uh, had somebody with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, he did have somebody with him. I will say this about John Wayne Bobbitt: the dumbest human being I've ever met. Really? Even dumber than Ahmed Johnson. I just looked at him and thought, "Oh my God, you're famous because you had your dick cut off." Yeah. Oh well, yeah. Well, consider the fact that you never talked to him a blessing because you would have lost several IQ point points at that uh, point in time. <laughs> the dumbest man I've ever spoken to. It was I couldn't get away from him fast enough. Well, was he there to kind of inform you how how to react to to it or what? <laughs> Uh, to this day, I still don't know exactly what the purpose was of him being there, other than to say, oh, he saved my wiener by flipping out the light, causing the Japanese guy to miss with the sword. I mean, other than that, yeah, it was... Uh, but do you know what? It honestly, was awesome. I mean, to have John it was awesome. Bobbitt on there, yeah, yeah. That, that's a great oh, yeah. call. Yeah, yeah. John Wayne Bobbitt was part of the biggest cliffhanger in television history. That's all he said. That's his, that's his cling to fame right there. Uh, 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 <laughs> you know, people don't realize that didn't live through it like we did, how wild the Attitude Era was. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I get on Twitter and I'll start messing around on Twitter and I'll get people all the time. If you go through my timeline, you'll see it through there regularly. Man, I remember being a kid. I really thought they chopped your junk off. I couldn't wait till the next week to find out what happened. Uh, you know, so, so you know it was a massive cliffhanger. So when you massive came cliffhanger in, when you first came fans. in, I got so many questions about this because I loved your character. Was for uh, did they have Jenna Jameson come in at very beginning or when you came in for the vignettes? How did the vignettes start? The, the porn star stuff first start. Well, um, yeah, that was really the first real, well, no, not the J. I know the Jenna Jameson would have been the first real porn star um, type of vignette that we did. Um, the other ones we did with the Scores Girls in the shower at the television studio. Uh, and I believe that was done, I believe that was done after the uh, Jenna Jameson. The Jenna Jameson videos were shot at Bruce Pritchard's house. Wow. And uh, yeah, with his wife there and everything. And I don't think his wife was too pleased about having Jenna Jameson in the house, but I, I didn't. Yeah, I don't think the, I don't think she was too happy about that. But it is what it is at that point. I didn't know any of this until after the fact. You know, Bruce, Bruce was uh, walking around like he was fully in charge of that household and what he says goes. Well, I find out later on that he was walking on eggshells the whole time. <laughs> he always is. <laughs> oh yeah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, I'm there making you know out loud jokes and his wife's hearing. And... 
How long just did terrible. you figure out the towel? Because that's not a normal thing. The towel actually came from the vignette that we did at the television studio, where the very first vignette we did, I was in the shower with two girls. I had a, shower, I had a towel on the rack. And the shot was, I opened the shower door, I step out and close the shower door behind me and take the towel off the rack and wrap it around my waist and then go into my promo. And when we were watching the, the promo back and I had that towel around my waist, I remember just thinking, I said, no one's ever wore a towel to the ring. It's a shower towel. I think Val Venus would constantly be showering. <laughs> I mean, it is what it is. Let's wear the towel. And so, yeah, that's really how it just, it was just one of those things you see it. Oh, that'd be a good idea. Let's use that. Just kind of built more onto the character as we were doing the vignettes. Even the, the Hello Ladies. That Hello Ladies was only really originally written into the very first vignette. But after I first stated that on that vignette and we were watching it back, Vince Russo clicked and he goes, you need to say Hello Ladies at the beginning of every vignette. Yeah. And then, of course, it went to Hello Ladies from when I first went out to the ring. And so things were just, you know, added on to as we went along and just kind of adding to the character. That hello ladies, I mean, that's iconic. When, when, when the audience would hear that hello ladies, man, those eyeballs would, and those heads would just automatically flip to the entrance back there. I mean, it was over. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, it was, a, it was such a simple saying. Uh, and it got over like Rover. Uh, oh, yeah. And the towel swing. I mean, it's, it's so audacious that it works. You know, to come out there oh, yeah. and swing the towel around. It's just, it's so, it's so, oh, yeah. but it, it works. Oh yeah. oh yeah. You you see the, you'll see kids doing it on, uh, on like YouTube videos and stuff. Yeah. Now they'll take the towel off. They'll go, hello ladies. And they'll spin the towel around. And usually it ends up snapping somebody with yeah. it, but. I, yeah, I was, yeah, I, was I was coaching high school wrestling down here in Tampa at the time, and all my wrestlers wanted to walk during the entrance, wanted to walk out with towels one night. They wanted to walk out with towels around. I said, no, I'll get fired. I'll get run out of the school. I'll get run out of the county. They'll never have me back as a coach in, in the county here. So I, <laughs> we wouldn't let them, but we had a few sneaking in every once in a while. It was, it was hilarious. <laughs> Tremendous, tremendous. How much you gotta love it. Did you get? I mean, at that time, you know, every time we crossed the line, you remember we get a call from somebody, somebody be mad at us. Did, how did you get much pushback? Uh, you know, I would get pushback generally before, uh, be, before the performance. So, you know, when, when we we're writing the jokes, for example, um, you know, I'm gonna say 50% of those jokes were mine, some of them were the writers. Uh, you know, some of them would come from Vince Russo or who's the other guy that was with Vince Russo at the time, the shorter guy, the uh, Ferrara. Yeah. Ed Ferrara, Ed, Ed, Ferrara. Ed, Ed Ferrara. Yeah. Yeah. Between those two, I mean, they came up with some decent jokes when I had brain farts and I couldn't come up with anything. I would go to two people, either Al Snow or Kane. They'd always be able. They'd always be able to break that writer's block. And Kane, 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 Kane on that mindset. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. Yeah, you never, you never suspect that Kane would have that mind, you know. But he, uh, he broke my writer's block a few times uh -huh. and uh, and got it, got us to where we needed to be. But there were several times where we'd write the jokes out and then I'd take them to Vince, and Vince would go, "Absolutely not. That, that's just." <laughs> That <laughs> shook his head on something during that time. That's wild, too. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I will say this for, you know, back at that point in time, 
thinking morally and ethically was the last thing on my mind. Yeah. Vince was kind of that chain that would, you know, you'd push the envelope and Vince would pull it back to where he wanted it to be. And one thing that I kind of really respected a lot from Vince, and I didn't respect it until several years later, was Vince would constantly push the idea to me that when you create these jokes, the jokes have to be constructed in a way where the adults will understand it, but the kids would be like, why is everybody laughing at that? What's so funny about it? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it was to me, that was, uh, it's a little bit of uh, Vince exhibiting morality into his product, which I didn't think about it. Again, I didn't think about that until several years after the fact. But um, that was constantly something that stuck in my head. You know, you got to create these jokes so the adults understand it. We don't want the kids understanding it. JBL and, had some some of the same type feedback from Vince, you know, just just kind of pushing him back, but also teaching him to 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 relate to your audience out there without pulling back all totally. Right, John? Oh my God! There's sometimes, and and you've done this about because you interacted with him a lot. Was you know you'd go out there and Vince would say, "Well, what's your idea?" And I I remember one time I had this. I thought it was a great idea. I had this whole promo lined up, and he just looked at me. You know, he always has that long pause. You know, which I tell people, you know, when you're, when you're talking to Vince, be ready. Cause he's going to listen to you. And some people, you know, cause Daddy a, lot, does. a lot of people, you know, you go and talk, you expect to be interrupted. Vince won't interrupt you. He'll let you, he'll let you finish. And then he'll think about it for a second. And you're sitting there thinking, did I do something wrong? And then he'll come back with an answer. <laughs> and all of a sudden he comes up with the answer. You go, why didn't I think about that? <laughs> you know? I remember one time I was in Canada and I had this whole thing about being the weaker sister and all this stuff. And then they goes, no, tell them you love them. And I thought, all right, I'll try it. I got there. I said, I just want everybody to know here. I'm glad to be here in this country. I love you. And the place almost rioted. They're like, fuck <laughs> you. <laughs> Screw you. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I'm sitting there looking, looking around going, wow. <laughs> That's oh, brilliant. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he comes up with that Tremendous. stuff, you know, like that. And, and you're the perfect talent for Vince because – you know, Vince is always trying to get those guys right to the edge of the envelope, but you don't know if they can go past it if they don't, because if Vince is pushing you past it, you know, then he knows where your boundaries are. But if your boundaries are past that envelope, it's easier for him to reel you in than it is to push you forward. And that to me, that yeah. people, people that Vince has that he always got to reel in a little bit, reel in a little bit, reel a little bit. I think Vince really likes that because he understands the creative process of these guys. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. When Vince, uh, it's, it's amazing to watch Vince be able to pull that chain back to where it's not only where he wants it. I'm going to assume it's where his advertisers want it. They, they don't want to cross that line. So he'll let you push as far as you want to go and then say, well, that sounds good, but let's get you right here. And he'll pull that chain back on you. And uh, in the end, it's, it's just a better product overall right. having that governor chain on there, yeah. basically, right? Is what he yeah. was. Right. He was basically the governor, right? Yeah. You know, during our time, we all have, we all have our favorite, favorite moments in, in the business there. But, you know, you, you, had, you had that iconic deal with Kayata. We kind of touched on it earlier, you know, where the, the suspense on, on, the, on the chop in there. That had to be so much fun working with 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 Kai and Ty talk uh, talk of Mitsubishi or I'm not saying that, that name wrong, but Mitsunoko. Mitsunoko, yeah. Well, what 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 a great what a great opponent you guys had. 
That had, that had to be a ball working that little program with those guys. Oh, yeah. Those guys were awesome to work with. You know, Takamishinu, you know, he's still over in Japan, I guess, performing still to this day. Wow. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah, I think he's still – I think he is either running a company or he's helping run a company he over there now. He was so good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was awesome, man. I used to love working Taka. He was a, he, he was a hell of a talent. Hell of a talent. You know, people but yeah, those lot, guys. Remember when Tommy Blancha was riding Sunday Night Heat? Uh, you know, he'd draw four ratings uh, a lot of times on on Sunday Night Heat, and yeah. one of them was with Kai and Ty and APA, and he had a whole thread for the whole show, do like a four point one. But you know, Kai and Ty was Kai and Ty was really good yeah. at what they did. They were incredibly entertaining characters. Yeah, dude. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, 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 indeed. <laughs> I remember the one time we were up in uh, we we're up in Gorilla, and they had um oh who was it that was doing the? They were talking, they were moving their lips. Oh yeah, it was great. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember. It was uh, Bruce started doing the indeed after a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. They had me. They had me on the mic doing that uh, one time for the Japanese guys, and. I couldn't change my voice enough. The whole entire arena understood it was me on the microphone. I think we, we, we had different guests doing it that, uh, a few times, too, where different guys would do it. It wasn't time, which made yeah, it, it even better. Time. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the whole arena busted out laughing when they when they heard my voice on that microphone and yeah. saw the Japanese mouth move, yeah. and it was hilarious. You know, you Absolutely know hysterical. was a young, young guy for um, Animal Hamaguchi in his gym there in Wayno State. That's where Funaki broke in at. So when we first oh, really? going there in the early '90s. We would see Funaki there, and later we see him uh, in WWE. And now he's got his cowboy boots on, and he's a Texan down in San Antonio. <laughs> yeah, he's a Texan. now. When we first got down to San Antonio, he has a pickup truck, he has cowboy boots, and a cowboy hat. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. Hell, he could be even more Texan than you now. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's not a Texan. He's a Yankee now, man. He, he's a, he's inherited all those styles up in New York City and Maryland now. He, he's a, yeah, that's yeah. I, I still that, that blows my mind that you that you left the great state of Texas for New York City. <laughs> New York City. I mean, how much alcohol did you consume before you solidified that decision? <laughs> <laughs> now he now he got a driver's license. He got driver's no, 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 no. I still have a Texas license. But you got to live in you gotta live in, the, you gotta live in the safe for six months, John. I we could turn you in if, if you, you could turn me in. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't pay taxes. You're, you're an illegal alien. <laughs> Tremendous. Tremendous. You gotta love it. <laughs> you're the one that loves paying taxes, aren't you, Val? Well, let's uh, let's call it. Okay, you got you got to understand no, 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 no. that term taxation is simply a desensitization word for what is in effect criminal extortion. Hey, it's a state-sanctioned so, extortion racket. What happened? Now, what happened in the Bahamas? Because you <laughs> you you thought you had a way to figure it out to get out of taxes. Now, I, I lived in Bermuda, and I tried to figure out how to get out of taxes, and I never could figure out how to do it, so I didn't try. But you, you had no, no, Bahamas no. for a while, and so what happened? Yeah, it wasn't to get out of federal taxes. It was to get out of state taxes <laughs> oh, or okay, provincial taxes. Yeah. yeah, not federal taxes. No, now, state Florida, taxes. Florida's easier than the Bahamas. <laughs> Florida's, but I, I wanted to go and spend a year in the Bahamas. After yeah. a year. I don't blame you. Um, 
after a year, I was ready to get the hell out of there. You know what I mean? And I, I went back to Canada. I spent two years there back in Canada. I said, screw this. This friggin' taxes up here are ridiculous. So I started looking in the States and I was trying to choose between either Florida or Texas or Arizona. So I wanted to go to a place where the sun goes to park and the taxes are either non-existent or very low. And so Arizona won out yeah. and uh, brought my so, ass so down. It was you, it was you and Andrew Christian. You guys all bought a place over in our, went over to the Bahamas to stay for a year or so, didn't you? Yeah, I went over there and, uh, and spent a year and uh, Edge, Edge was dating my sister at the time. And uh, they moved there too. I'm not exactly sure why they moved there. I guess, you know, we were just kind of new in the company and we're just like, yeah, let's go hang out in the Bahamas. Cause I was going there regardless. I wanted to spend yeah. a year there at least, you know, just so I could say I did it basically, <laughs> you know, and save a little bit of money in taxes. But yeah, it's uh Bahamas is a, it, it's different down there. Huh. Not a place I, I really want to spend any more time. That's for sure. Really? Because I, yeah. I love Bermuda. I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to move back to Bermuda. You know, and it's, it's the same thing. You pay full federal tax, but you get, out yeah, of you, state, pay full. you get out of state income tax if you move from a state that didn't have tax. Yes. Well, that's no, how, if you that's move from a state. For, for, worked for me. It, well, if you move from a state that doesn't have state tax, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't really gain anything, right? Correct. But if you move from a state that does have taxes, you're going to save on those taxes, you know? And I was up in Canada at the time and those, the, the province of Ontario taxes the hell out of you, you know? So I had to get my ass up, up and out of there. And here's the good thing about being Canadian was in America, if you leave America, you're still beholden to pay in the IRS yeah. federal taxes for the next 10 years wow. in Canada. If you get up and leave Canada, you don't got to pay federal tax anymore. That's as long as you're not Bermuda. You know, Bermuda is the reinsurance capital of the world. We got a bunch of hedge funds there, similar to the Caymans. And the thing is, if you're a Brit, if you're a Canadian, if you're an Aussie uh, from South Africa, wherever, you pay no tax unless you're an American. If you're an American, right. you still pay full federal tax, uh, unlike yeah, it's, it's, every other country in the world. Yeah, it's such highway robbery. Like you get up and you leave the states, and the IRS says, "No, we're still stealing your money for the next ten years." <laughs> well, well, what was the advantage of moving like to Bermuda then, John? I well, I got I went over there during the uh, financial crisis of '09. I was living in New York City, didn't like it, and uh, my wife says, "Won't you go to Bermuda?" And I went there because <laughs> you could get a timeshare for next to nothing. They people didn't know they were renting them, but they couldn't sell them because of the financial crisis. So I got one there. And then I ended up starting the charity in Bermuda and I needed somebody to run it and just kind of fell in love with Bermuda. So I ended up staying there. So there's no advantage. In fact, you're basically double taxed. So you're taxed federally and then you're taxed, uh, Bermuda's a consumption tax, which is a pretty fair tax. But so basically right. you're paying uh, consumption tax and you're paying uh, tax wow. in the United States. So for an American to live in Bermuda, there's no advantage. In fact, it's a yeah, you know, just but it's a beautiful it's, place and it's got great golf. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now you were doing a lot of rugby stuff over there as well, weren't you? Were you not? Yeah, yeah. That's what I worked with the kids with. I started up rugby. I got in rugby in all the schools in Bermuda. Uh, Gareth Noakes then took it over for me and took it to another level, the, the charity. We're working with uh, right uh, gang type kids there in Bermuda. And we use rugby as our sport to get the, that's the carrot to get the kids in. 
then you get them whatever sure. they need, whether that's tutorials, job skills, whatever they need from that point forward, we, we help them with. Very cool. I've never it's been a lot to of fun. Rugby is a great sport. I've never played it, and I think it'd be a lot of fun. I, I think yeah, most of the guys you know, would really enjoy playing. You know, I could picture you getting into lacrosse. You ever played that? No, never played it. Oh, great game. Great game. You know, that's Canada's national sport. I thought lacrosse it was is. Yeah, I thought it was hockey too, but it's not. It's lacrosse. Lacrosse is Canada's wow. national sport. I thought yeah. it was moose watching, curling, and Molson drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that Molson well, drinking not... has to be right there on top. <laughs> well, at least it's not Bud Light drinking. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, you know, Canada was always talking about taxes, the blue checks. The and what? The blue to... checks? Oh, yeah, because if you're an American, you got the blue check. With all oh, the yeah, yeah. It was a different it was yeah. a different color check that you would get. It was a blue check. Yeah. Hey, have you guys ever heard my YouTube videos where I call up IRS agents or Revenue Canada agents? We're scared yeah. to be followed by the government watching your yeah. YouTube videos. Oh. <laughs> oh, you guys you guys gotta watch those videos. They have no answer. You know, when you use fact and logic when you're when you're trying to draw out where the IRS or Revenue Canada gets its real authority from to take our money. And you start to hear them backtrack and cover for themselves. And well, that's way above my pay. I had an IRS agent tell me straight, you can hear it on the YouTube video. Well, that's way above my pay grade. I don't really know. So it's well, absolutely unbelievable. Crazy. Well, I mean, logic, if you consider, if you consider logic crazy, then hey, color me crazy. You know, we, Here's the, here's the reality, right? Everybody thinks we earn money. We don't earn money. Nobody earns money. That's bullshit. That is banker indoctrinated, uh, I guess you would call it propaganda, right? We're taught from a young age that you go out there and you earn money. You don't earn money. When we're working in the private sector, whether you're in WWE and you're entertaining the fans, you're giving other human beings what they want, need, or desire, right? That's entertainment. Or if you're over at McDonald's flipping burgers, you're creating something that other human beings want, need, or desire. You're creating, okay? When the company pays you in the banker's product called Federal Reserve Notes, they're giving you a tool to take that value that you create and you tokenize that value into the tool I warned you, Mr. Reserve Notes. I warned you. Right? <laughs> well, so, you so brought it up, man. <laughs> so, so, so hear me out. You're tokenizing that value into U.S. dollars. Well, why would we do that? Well, for good reason is it makes it easy to now trade our value. Eat a loaf of bread, we trade value for value. The problem is when we take that value that we create working and we tokenize it into U.S. dollars, the fucking pricks at the Federal Reserve turn on the printing presses and steal the value that we've created right out of the dollar bills we already worked for. Now, let me ask you this, John. Okay, did go you ahead. Consent to that? Did you consent to that theft of value right there? Because I know I never did. Okay, what's the correct answer? No. No, you, you yes, never consented. No, yes. So yeah. here's what we need to do. Fix the money supply. No more printing currency out of thin air because it gets worse. Here's where it gets worse. Not only does the Federal Reserve print money out of thin air and they call it quantitative easing, like it's some kind of legitimate function of the market. It's theft. It's theft through counterfeiting, right? So they print out all this new currency that steals the value that we created working and puts it, because all the bills got to be the same amount of value, right? 
So that gets spread so thin. Now it's stolen. Have any money. Hey, hey, no, John, no, no. hey, John, is Meredith in the background listening to this? <laughs> <laughs> so, so hear me out on this. If she is, so then they take that stolen value. <laughs> they, they've taken that stolen value. The Federal Reserve, when they print all that new currency, they've taken that stolen value and they loan it to our government and make us pay it back. So they steal our value, package it into new printed dollars, loan it to our government, and now we have to pay back the value that was stolen from us in the first place? What do you think about that, Please Mr. Briscoe? Uh, I think he's got a hell of a point there. Right? Am I right or am I wrong? I think you got a hell of a point, Val. Right? Yeah. The central banks have got to go. They're the worst disease. So we're paying twice for a harder dollar is what you're saying. Well, you know, you got the IRS that's yeah. saying, hey, pay us the tool with the value in it. Yeah. Yeah. So they're stealing once from you. Yeah. And then you got the central bankers. They don't well, need the tool. They just counterfeit the currency and steal the value rate right of the tool you already worked for. They just print more saying? up. Print more up. Yeah, it's such a scam. And then we're left with higher prices. And who do we? And who, who does the majority of Americans blame? The greedy business owner. They don't blame the bankers. You so, know what I mean? Did you see Scott Casey's UFO? <laughs> he was abducted by the damn thing, John. <laughs> so Val, Val, we, we have Scott, Scott Casey. I don't know if you know, I don't know if you know Scott. Wonderful guy. He told us a story Scott. about a UFO he saw with Mil Mascaris, uh what Wahoo uh, and Tom Jones. Wahoo Tom Jones in Texas had everything down and he got, he got mad at Mr. Briscoe because Briscoe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe question a little bit of the story and, and so we can't find anybody to make this claim uh, valid so i'm wondering if maybe you had seen the ufo well can't say i've seen any ufos <laughs> yes, I, have. I might i might be tax crazy but i ain't ufo crazy <laughs> well, i didn't know i didn't yeah. know well, uh, how about flat earth is flat earth a crazy thing? I think it is. Well, I don't know the last text message I said, John. I told him it was, was flat, right? That's right. <laughs> well, I, I've told you before, I love the flat earth guys. I think they're awesome. I follow them on social media, everything. I, I mean, I think they're crazy. I don't believe in it. But they have an answer for everything. They have an answer for you know the rockets, and they have an answer. It's I, I literally, I, I fought every day. I read their, I read their stuff they put out. It's the most entertaining thing ever. Well, <laughs> but you're not a flat earther, right? No, I'm not a flat earther. And quite frankly, if the earth was flat or round, I really don't care. The only <laughs> thing I care about is the amount of control government has over us and the amount that they, the amount of value that they steal from us through banking and through, through the counterfeit, let's not even call it banking anymore. These guys are counterfeiters. That's what they are. So you got the counterfeiters and you got the taxers, which are the extortionists. So counterfeiters and extortionists. That's the only thing I care about. Well, I care about Scott Casey's UFO. And yeah, I do too. <laughs> Val, 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 what, what are you doing now? What, what's your, what, what, what's your, what, what's your, your uh, deal out in Arizona? What, what are you doing? I'm uh, I'm in the cannabis industry now down here. Okay, tell us so what we're, uh, the cannabis industry. Well, you know, it was uh, 
kind of something. I was always anti, anti up until about 27 years old. I was anti everything, right? <laughs> and we would have never guessed. 27. How old are you still at? <laughs> what are you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't change. You know, the first the first time I ever smoked, I was 27 years old, you know, when I smoked weed for the first time. That changed but, your um, life. Um, I'm not going to say it changed my life. It's replaced alcohol at the time. <laughs> you know, I was never a fan of alcohol. I just go and get a beer with the guys every once in a while because I thought that's what adults do, right? <laughs> but the first time I tried a marijuana joint, I had half a beer in my hand and I took two big rips off that joint. And I was with X-Pac and a couple other guys. And uh, once I realized what weed was, I pushed that half-finished beer away, and I never touched alcohol ever again after that. Good. And you haven't drank since? I think. You don't... I haven't drank since, yeah. Really? Yeah, I ne ne never liked alcohol. Never liked it. There was nothing. I never liked the flavor of it. I never liked the stupid shit I did under the influence of it. <laughs> and I never liked the hangovers. So there was nothing I liked about it. Yeah. And I just said, okay, this weed's so much better, so much better. And uh, when I was 27 and I tried weed for the first time, I'm not going to say it changed my life. It just became kind of a replacement. You know, and I drank maybe, what, a couple times a month. And instead, I would just smoke weed a couple times a month. It really started to change my life when I was about 38 years old and I had to get those six pins put on my shoulder. And they gave me those pain pills. And I was on those pain pills every day for three months. And uh, I woke up one morning and I was still in the recliner locked in that brace. And it was the first night in three months that I got a full night's sleep. I didn't, you know, prior to that, that throbbing would wake me up every half hour. And so I woke up one morning about three months after surgery. And I was like, oh, damn, I slept all night. And so I didn't take any pills that day because there was no more throbbing. The next day. I was in the middle of the living room floor in the fetal position, covered in sweat, but ice cold, vomiting. It was just horrible. I was going through withdrawals. And uh, when I got through the withdrawals after two weeks, it was weed that actually helped me get through the withdrawals and not take another pill. So I had so many guys telling me, dude, if you don't like the sickness, just drop a pill. The sickness will stop. Problem with that is if you're going to stop the pills, you're going to have to power your way through these withdrawals. So I had another friend of mine saying, dude, smoke weed will make it way easier. And uh, I started smoking weed that second week of going through withdrawals. It didn't get it didn't get rid of the withdrawals, but it made the withdrawals far more bearable. I could sit there comfortably in the couch and turn on, you know, King of Queens and just power my way through that second week of withdrawals. And once I came out that second week and the withdrawals were now gone, that's when I started to realize, okay, there's some real legitimate medicinal benefits to yeah. cannabis. And that's what started getting me, you know, ordering all kinds of books, looking online and really started that rabbit hole of learning about cannabis. And I'm still going down that rabbit hole today. Yeah. You know, this is what we're going on, what, almost 15 years later now, right? Yeah. yeah. Val, Val, I got to tell you, I had my knee replaced about a year or so ago and when I, when I, when I finished, when I was leaving the hospital, the doctor slid me over 90, 90 oxycodone. And I just took my hand and I pushed it back to him. I said, I'm not going to take those things. He said, believe me, you're going to need them. I said, no, I'm not. And, and so I pushed them back. And I said, I'm just not going to take them. So I went home. I had some friends bring me over some gummies and all that stuff. I substituted that. And, and 10 days later, I walked into that hospital 
where my doctor's office without a crutch, without a walker, and with no pain. He said, what did you do? I said, I took cannabis. He said, I got to do more research on that. And he said, I said, yes, sir, <laughs> you do. You do. And, yeah. and, I, and so I agree with, you. I had no pain. I could sleep well. I, you know, it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful combination for me anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, cannabis is, uh, to me, it's, it's not the funnest drug in the world. Uh, you know, it's, it's not, uh, you, you don't go out and make memories getting high on cannabis. You <laughs> might sit down with your buddies and either. You just can't remember them. Or, you might make memories, but you don't remember them. <laughs> you don't remember them, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's definitely got a lot of medicinal purposes, man. Like, I, you know, use any, anything from simple things like insomnia or just general aches and pains. The great thing I like about cannabis is with those pain pills, those opiates, they literally get rid of the, the aching and the pain. The problem with that is if you're out there working, you're doing whatever it is you're doing, you can overextend yourself, not feel the pain and cause more damage. Whereas with cannabis, it didn't like it didn't it doesn't get rid of the pain. For me, it changes your perception of the pain. You just don't care about it. You can still feel it. So if you overextend yourself, you're going to be like, whoa, don't go that far. And so it, to me, cannabis is much better for treating pain uh, for short periods of time. It, as compared to opiates, because opiates, if you don't feel that pain, you can cause more damage, you know, and uh, with weed, you still feel that pain, you just yeah. don't really care about it. So you're so in the cannabis business, what do you have a dispensary, you have your own line of uh, products, or what? Don't tell us what you have. No, well, I work with uh, Health for Life dispensaries right now, and uh, so I've been there since 2014. I opened a cannabis uh, vapor lounge in 2014 called Purple Haze House. That's how I got into the dispensary. I was trying to get in and nobody was hiring at that point in time in the cannabis industry. They were only hiring friends and close family members because it was still relatively new here. And um, so I opened up a cannabis vapor lounge and then eventually met the owners of some of the dispensaries because they came into my shop. And uh, then I finally got in on health for life dispensaries. I've been there ever since. And so now we're just getting ready to develop my first brand which is uh, Dank Anarchy Cannabis. Um, I've been doing custom canagars for about the last three years, but now we're getting ready to get those canagars on the shelf and actually get them in all four stores. So that's where we're at right now. It's, you know, the cannabis industry is still in its infancy. It's still right. growing like, like a weed, literally. <laughs> like a weed. <laughs> well, before we let you go, I wanna, I, I've got to ask you, because uh, I, I love the characters, the right to censor. I thought oh, yeah. they were awesome. I mean, yet with Ivory and Godfather and Bull and you, I, I just thought it was the perfect heel faction. What happened? Oh, yeah. In fact, we worked, we were, me and, uh, I think me and Ron worked with you guys, WrestleMania 7, 17 or something, and down in Houston. Uh, yeah, yeah, that we did. We did, yeah. yep. Uh, yeah. yeah. Whatever, what, what happened to the group that just play out? What did you think about it? Because I, I thought that, I thought the way, especially when you had Godfather dressed up in that right to center outfit, I thought it was oh, yeah. awesome. Oh, it was great. I think more it was, uh, it was that point in time was, and I'm sure you recall this, the parental television council oh, yeah. was really attacking our advertisers. Right. I think they got Coca-Cola at the time to pull out of advertising WWE Raw. Um, and so it was something that Vince was becoming concerned about. And uh, so I remember Vince telling me about the parents of television council and the issues 
that they were bringing up because a lot of the news media were giving the parental television council a, a lot of time on the air to really uh, discuss their grievances with WWE. And I think that was concerning Vince a lot. And uh, so Vince decided to take, you know, some of the most controversial characters and obviously mine and Godfather's being the, the most controversial at that point in time and doing a 180 with them, calling them right to censor the RTC as opposed to the PTC and in a way mocking the PTC. And so that was really his way to mock the people that were trying to censor Raw at the time. Yeah. And, uh, of course, from what I saw, I don't know why it didn't last as long as it did or why it didn't last longer than it did. Uh, I think a lot of that was because after, you know, once we were in that RTC thing and we were doing our thing, I started to notice that the coverage that mainstream media was giving to the parental television council was waning. They weren't getting the kind of coverage that they used to get. And with the parental television council being kind of relegated back to the background, the RTC kind of was relegated to the background as well. I think we were, you know, the RTC group was used for a purpose and that was to mock the PTC at the time. And uh, once the PTC was no longer an issue, uh, the RTC kind of fell off at that point in time. But yeah, it did its job. It was a hell of a group, that's for sure. Had a lot of fun doing it. Um, wasn't a fan of wearing the long pants and the shirt and the tie. But because, uh, you know, I, I sweat like a mofo when I'm out there working. And, you know, it, it's easy to watch a pair of knee pads and trunks, you know, every night after work. But to wash long pants and a shirt, I mean, it just got, it was, uh, it was brutal. It was brutal. I did not like wearing those clothes and all. But the group, working with the group was awesome. Yeah, they brought in. I was trying to Google it right there. The, the the guy was played the weatherman in the in the, the um, oh the the movie. Uh, they brought in him as as the uh, Rob Burgundy did, as the actor to to play the guy who was the head of the PTC. I can't yes, that's right. Funny guy. Yeah. And they they brought him in once, and it did a great job. And then after that, the 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 PTC started backing off, you know, because all of a sudden they're being attacked, you know, which. You know how these groups are. They're great at attacking people, but once you attack them back, they're like, oh, my God, I, let's leave these guys alone. Yeah, yeah, they, they don't know how to handle being attacked, that's for sure. You know, and, of course, when you uh, when you can handle being attacked and you can, uh, you can defend yourself with fact and logic, you know, on a regular basis, then you get uh, the backlash, which is, uh, you know, status will call you communist. <laughs> <laughs> You damn it's tremendous. <laughs> tremendous. <laughs> tremendous. You guys got to go check out my YouTube channel, man. I'm going to get like a. I'm like scared if I frat. get on it, I'm going to be followed by the government. Hey, <laughs> I can't help that. I can't help that, bro. That's out of my control. But I'll go around. I'll get, dude, I'll go around and get traffic tickets intentionally just so I can go to court and expose the traffic court for what they really are extortionists. For those that don't, obviously don't know, uh, Mr. Briscoe, I, I, I called you a communist. When I, I've always called you a communist because you're as far yes, from a are. communist as can possibly be. So I go to the yep. other extreme and call you that. And so I, I told Mr. Briscoe, I said, he's as far from it. I've always called him that. And Jerry sent me a text back, damn commie. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. You got to love it. You got to love it. Oh, yeah. You guys got to hear some of these. Uh, like, there was a guy named, uh, what was his name, Max? 
he owns, uh, he runs, or I guess he writes for DC Patriot. Do you know that blog? That no, DC I'm Patriot? not going to admit to anything. <laughs> <laughs> He's on your side. This guy's on your side. He's on your side, John. <laughs> so he, he's uh, he's pretty much a hardcore Republican. I guess he used to work at Fox News. That's John. <laughs> but one of the uh, one of the traffic court things I did in Apache Junction, where I literally had the traffic court judge questioning her own job, just try, scrambling to justify her own job. And this mad guy from Fox News that runs the DC Patriot blog now, he uh, he gets a hold of that video and he's like, "This is amazing." This, this guy, well, he didn't know I was arrested at the time. He just goes, "This guy will not let this judge just run over him." It's amazing. He started pushing it out there, and that's really where my YouTube channel really started taking off. Was when that guy started pushing my uh, my videos. Uh, so <laughs> they got to see it. They can, they can find you on YouTube. What what other forms are you on right now? Uh, mainly just on YouTube. I'm on Twitter and Facebook as well, but I'm so and what, 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 what did he type in the search bar? Uh, so on Twitter, it's Val Venus ENT. So at Val Venus ENT. And on Facebook, it's The Val Venus. Okay. Yeah, they can find me out there. And then on YouTube, it's Top YouTube. Shelf Anarchy. Okay, cool. And that's basically well, hey, Val, my. Uh, hey, Val, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're stopped <laughs> off in a car and you're probably going to die from heat exhaustion or something which we really want, we really want to get on our show so start running the camera again if you start to pass out oh yeah you know it. <laughs> but hey val i love you i think you're one of the best i've always considered you a good friend and somebody i love being around we had we had such a good time i can't remember where it was you and i rode back to the airport from somewhere we had about an hour oh yeah that was just recently that's right that was, uh New Jersey somewhere, wasn't it? I think I can't remember. We were together for about Pennsylvania. An hour I can't. Remember. It was yeah, so much was, fun. We had we had a good yeah, time. Yeah, it was. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You gotta love it. You gotta love it. <laughs> but well, thank heck you yeah, well, thank on. you guys. Yeah, and, uh, ho hopefully, I get to see you again soon. Absolutely, man. I'd love to be traveling down the road with you again at some point. And hopefully, I get to sample some of your product real soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Briscoe, you come out here to Phoenix, man. Just hit me up. I'll hook you up. We'll get cool. you a nice big can of guard. A big seven gram canagar. We'll blaze the crap out of that. What, what the heck is that? A canagar is a cannabis cigar, okay. but it's tightly packed. It's wrapped in cannabis leaves. And is that a blunt? Is that an old school blunt or what? No, a blunt is where you breathe the air through the lightly compacted flower. This okay. thing is so tightly packed that it's built around a skewer stick. Uh -huh. So before you light this thing, you got to pull a skewer stick out of it. So you have a hole running right down the middle of it. And when you got to torch the end of it to get it to cherry, and once it's lit up, that like seven grammar, that thing will burn two to three hours. Easy. Wow. Easy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're they're great. They're, well, if you come out to Phoenix, hit me up. I'll definitely hook you up. Cool. Date. Uh, yeah. <laughs>